We want to welcome our center worshipers in with us today and uh, those that are streaming live with us. Miss Brenda, I've heard you sing many, many times, but I, I, I believe today was the finest I've ever heard you. What, what an incredible message by song and thank you for uh, sharing with us. Appreciate Kathy Levitin as well. Didn't she do a great job with the video today? And uh, just, man, what a blessing. Uh, you know, just have those kind of folks you know, around us week by week. You know, I, man, this Christmas is going to look different, isn't it? Feels different. It is different. And uh, one of our prayers has been, even through the midst of a pandemic, through, through the midst of uh, all the things that we're wrestling with, the emotional side of Christmas 2020, so many have uh, shared, and you're going to see article after article uh, as we come to the end of this year, that this is the year that we want to forget. This is, uh, I saw one the other day, this is a year straight from hell. I've, I mean, I've seen all kinds of observations already about the year. But uh, we can say with assurance that this Christmas is going to feel different, it's going to be different. And so our prayer has been, uh, from a church leadership standpoint, just to really just slow the, uh, I mean, to slow everything down and just to spend some time really, really digging and trying to rediscover Christmas. And uh, man, that's, that's my prayer for you. As, as we go back and walk through some of these incredible Bible verses that God just gives us an insight like he's never given before. We looked a couple of weeks ago about the villain of Christmas. We looked at old Herod and the story behind the scenes of all the things that he, he was up to, the, the plots, the ploys. And uh, last week, the true story of Christmas. But today, I, I want to share with you from probably the most prominent Christmas passage in all the Bible. I'm going to invite you to turn there, Luke chapter number 2. In fact, uh, as we read in just a moment, those uh, significant verses, many of you can recite them. You might not get them exactly word for word, but you certainly can utter most of them because they become so familiar to us as Dr. Luke gives us the Christmas story. At least it's not a story so much to him as it is an account, a historical account of what took place uh, as our Lord and Savior in the flesh came from the very heavenlies and occupy, occupied a body, a body, body form known as and named Jesus. And uh, as we look at that this Christmas, that's, that's my prayer is that God's going to let us discover that all fresh and all new. One of the things that um, I've just been kind of pondering is the simple fact that, you, you know, uh, from the time that our Lord and Savior was born uh, and until the time that uh, he exited planet Earth, very few people really had time for him. Very few people really, um, I mean, even those that followed him in search of some kind of spectacular miracle, there were so many that just pushed him aside. And that's so very evident at his birth, and that's evident in his ministry, and it's certainly evident even in the very end at the cross. When uh, even as they hung him on the cross, the city was abuzz, people were... Uh, filled with other things going on in their lives. In fact, we know the disciples had scattered. Many of them were fearful. And it just amazes me uh, 
as I think about this Christmas, the year Christmas 2020, that uh, again, maybe our focus is not where it needs to be. And so my heart today, as it pounds, uh, is, is just reconnecting, reconnecting with those incredible words, away, away in a manger. You remember those lyrics? No crib for a what? No crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus, he what? He lay down his sweet head. You know, our Lord really didn't have much, did he? When you look at the things that he amassed in his lifetime, possessions were not a big part. In fact, very few people, as we said, had even any, any room for Jesus at all. Have you ever stopped to think that he was born in a borrowed stable? He was laid in a borrowed manger. He was buried in a, in, in, a, in a borrowed tomb. And even within that tomb, he was wrapped in borrowed clothes. What I want to do with you this morning, and I hope you'll just come along with me in a little personal journey that I'd like to take you on. I've just uh, searched out and found three little simple words that begin with the letter C. No pun intended for my last name, Cook, but the letter C. And uh, today, I want us just to, to uh, revisit some of these incredible verses out of Luke chapter number two. I hope you brought your Bible to read from. If not, we're going to project some verses for you. Uh, but the first of those words is going to be a census. The first little C word is a census. I think that will help us today as you and I spend just a few moments looking at the background of our Lord and Savior, reconnecting, rediscovering. I want us to talk about this census that really demonstrates the incredible providence of God. I don't think we should go very far, but to remember the one that, very, that wrote these incredible words. We know his name was Luke. After all, that's what this particular book in our Bible states. This is the account of Luke. If you just back up with me for a moment and look in Luke chapter one and verses one through four, I, I think it's important that you and I understand that Luke is not just giving some kind of, um, just a, a narrative of the best of his recollection. Luke not only was a medical doctor, but he was really, when you look back, a very accurate historian. In fact, I read these first four verses from you to you from Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and reading down through verse 4, because I want you to hear the heartbeat of Luke as he prepares to unfold the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in Luke 1, beginning in verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw an account of the things that have been filled among us. Notice that. Luke said there's been many that have undergone this journey to try to tell us things that have been fulfilled. Look in, the, uh, look in verse two. Just as they were handed down to us by those who, were, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And then he says in verse three, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything. You see those words? I myself... I've heard that, I've read that, I've listened to that, but Luke wants us to know I have personally, I have personally investigated everything from the beginning and I too will write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty, the very certainty of the things 
that have been taught. And I don't know about you, but as we let the pages of God's word fall open to Luke chapter two, and we read that Christmas story again, and really with our intention and focus today being on the background, that brings great credibility. That brings great credence to what Luke is stating is that this is not something he just quickly threw together, but after an extensive project in his own heart with intensive research, with reading, with understanding, taking all the things that he's read and processed from the past and then being an eyewitness himself. He says, I, I, I chart a course now to write for you so that you can have with certainty, you can stand with scriptural integrity as you begin to teach God's word. Let's read together Luke chapter two, beginning in verse number one. In those days, and that's a huge phrase for us today, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken from the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius, the governor, uh, uh, was governor of Syria. Now, as we think about this census, it's going to provide for us once again, as we rediscover and reconnect, it's going to provide for us some very valuable background. The Bible says in these days, in those days that this text is being recorded from, uh, that those, those two words set the stage for us. They set the stage for the greatest empire the world's ever seen. Let's see if I can remember from my geography and my, my, my biblical geography days. Let's see, on the, uh, the western, what was it? The Atlantic. On the eastern, the Euphrates. On the northern boundary, all the way up to, what was it? The Rhine River. And the southern boundary, all the way down to a desert called the Sahara. The Roman Empire stretched out over the, the massed, the, the very known world. It was humongous. It was gigantic. And in that empire, one name and one name only rang out as supreme, Caesar. Caesar's surname, Augustus. Caesar Augustus, the Bible says in verse one, issued a decree. And when he issued a decree, it was immediately law. It was the way that it was. No one argued. And his decree, look at it in verse one, was that a census should be taken. That's the decree. I want everyone counted. I want everyone processed. And here's our C word, census. And we ask in our minds, no doubt, the purpose for a census. And I think most of us are aware it was a simple rationale, taxation. I don't know about you, but I've learned something about government taxes throughout my lifetime. The government only taxes everybody that breathes, amen? And uh, I mean, as you let that just soak in for a moment. But we know that the bureaucracy and the military was growing so rapidly under the Roman authorities and the world as they were trying to keep it in check. Uh, th there had to be a huge influx of dollars and so everybody had to be taxed. I read often about, uh, from scholars that suggest, well, the whole point of this decree was greed. And I just can't, I just gotta tell you, I can't disagree 
any more strongly today from that statement. I, I, don't, I, I don't believe that this decree was given because of greed. I personally believe this decree was given because of the very force and providential concern of God in this whole element of the coming of the Lord Jesus. And you say, well, why would you say that? I say that because even in your Bibles you see, and we often forget, never in the Roman Empire had there ever, ever even been a census ordered up until this time. All of the different needs financially, and no one had ever ordered this in the history of the Roman Empire. And now just at this moment, the first census ever taken. Why now? I believe God was in the midst of that. And not only the timing of it, but who was involved in it. Up until this time, the Jews and the slaves, they were not taxed. And now suddenly, Caesar says, I want everyone counted with the purpose that everyone will begin giving taxes. Even the Jewish community will also be a part. They're not even Roman citizens and they will be counted, they will be processed and they will be taxed as well. I don't know about you, but just in this year that we live in, knowing that God has such a master plan, revolving, everything he was doing was revolving around this baby in the manger. In my daily devotional a couple weeks ago, God took me back to Psalm 62 and verse 11. In Psalm 62, 11, there's this interesting phrase there. The verse, as I was studying it and walking through it several weeks ago, one early one morning, the, the, the verse simply says, one thing God spoke and two things that I have heard. And then here's the statement, power belongs to you, God. And one of the things that's been so helpful to me, and I hope to be able to communicate that to you and pass that on to you, is that even in the midst of these uncertain times that you and I are experiencing, our God is still in control. I hear so many people elevating Satan and the evil one through all this. Let me tell you something. This pandemic has not caught our God off guard. I remind you that there's never any panic in heaven. You remember us talking about that last week? Only plans. And our God had meticulous plans laid out. I love that phrase. The power belongs to God. You see, the president has political power, doesn't he? The millionaire has financial power. We've got to understand that a general has martial power and a scholar may have intellectual power, but our God has universal power. Can I hear a baby amen to that? Aren't you thankful that our God is in full control Gosh, the other day I found one of, one of my old Kindles and I opened it up and of course it was deader than a doornail in terms of battery life. So I got that dude fired back up and when it came on, it had been three years since I'd even opened this little Kindle. I, I forgot that I even had it. And when I opened it back up, an old three-week, I mean a three-year-old news article from U.S. News popped up right there. I guess that was one of the last things I had read. It was in my files there. You know, and, and I was just looking back three years ago with all the things going on in the world. And you know, as I was thinking about that, you know, as you and I read about news, we may come across something and think, well, that's incidental. 
or, we, or something may happen to us or we may experience something. We, we even may think it's coincidental or accidental. Let me tell you something. God sees these things as fundamental and you and I have got to embrace that. Again, in the text, look at it. Those days in verse one, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. Caesar makes a decree. Have you ever stopped to think that if Caesar had made that decree three months earlier, Jesus would not have been in the exact place at the right time as God had given through prophecy hundreds of years before. Or if Caesar had made that decree three months later, then he made it. The natural birth of the Lord Jesus, it had to be exactly perfect. I heard about a Sunday school teacher that was working with some children and she was firing off to her, her third grade class several questions about Christmas and she was asking these third graders, she said, I, I just want to know, here's a question for you, why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? And one of the little boys in the class raised his hand. He said, I know, I know. And she said, okay, tell us, why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? And the little boy said, because his mother was there. <laughs> now, that's a good answer, amen? I mean, that's, hey, that's solid, dude. And even though that's true, we know the real reason that Jesus was born there was because a census was ordered. But bigger than that, a census was ordered because of the far-reaching providential hand of God. Millions of people were displaced, their lives disrupted. They had to make a journey into back to their hometowns, to the place of registry, all because... Mary and Joseph needed to be in Bethlehem at the perfect time so that Jesus could be born. See, it may not mean a lot to you, but it means the world to me to know that a census was ordered to be taken. And that census may just be a flippant part of this Christmas story you've read over and over. But I want to tell you, in the world in which you and I live, there's so much, there's such a sense of richness knowing that our God is in control. So we start just with this census of God's providential power. But I want you to jot down a second little C word. I want you to look at it for a moment with me. And that's the word city. There's a city here that's mentioned, a city that is going to complete the prophecy from God that is so very significant. We've read those first two verses. Let's keep reading. Look down in Luke chapter 2 and verse 3. Would you join me there? And everyone went to their own town to register. So, verse 4, Joseph also went to the town of Nazareth and Galilee, to, Ju to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the lineage, or the line, as the NIV translates this, of David. He went there to register with Mary, 
who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. You know, the Bible tells us something interesting about Joseph. It says, now, now Joseph leaves. Joseph leaves from the region where he was residing in Galilee and in that town of Nazareth, and he has a destination. The Bible lays it out very clearly for us that he's going to go to another region. He's going to leave Galilee. He's going to go to Judea, to a, not, not where he lives in Nazareth, but he's going back to his very birthplace, to the town of Bethlehem. Now, I see, how would I translate that in East Texas vernacular? You go back to the place where your uh, courthouse is that has your birth records, the place where your family, the, back to the county seat, if you will. And the Bible gives us the exact location he had to go. Look in the middle of verse number uh, uh, four there. He had to go to Bethlehem. You know about Bethlehem, don't you? Quick fire information, Bethlehem, about four and a half miles southwest of Jerusalem. You remember Bethlehem because the pastor's favorite book in the Bible is the book of Ruth. You've heard that over and over. And you know that's where Boaz was from, Bethlehem. We know that's significant because Boaz is going to be what? Part of the lineage of having a great grandson by the name of David. You remember that character, don't you? King David, soon to be. He was born there. He was reared there. He lived there. Bethlehem, you understand, important place because it connected Hebron in the north all the way through a nation to the south called Egypt. And so right through the middle of Bethlehem goes this highway, this byway, connecting those two very important places. The Bible tells us Rachel was, was uh, born there. We know that the name was changed later in history to Bethlehem because early on it was Ephrath. It was the place of bread. Incredible history in the little town of Bethlehem. But I want you to look at how exact the circumstances are. Remember Luke 1? One through four, Luke promised us, now I'm going to bring you some what? Exactness. I'm going to bring you accuracy so that you can have confidence. And you begin to see that unfolding right here as he gives us these very meticulous, the exact circumstances. But you and I, if we put our thinking caps on, we'd have to ask a number of questions here. Number one, we know that women could not own property. So therefore, they wouldn't be taxed. So the only ones that really would be required to follow this edict or this decree from Caesar himself would be males. And so as readers, we should be asking this question. You know, no, this is interesting. I guess some other wives may have accompanied their husbands, but not every what word would I use with great tact and respect? Not every girlfriend, engaged girlfriend, that's pregnant would follow their future husband to register. And you and I, in the middle of a really crazy, chaotic Christmas, 
are taken back to begin to understand that, you know, this one had some of its own chaos and confusion. Not the Lord's plan. But when you think about going 90 miles, when you think about Mary and Joseph having probably very little funding, there's no sense in any scripture that that family had any any substantial wealth. If they were lucky that they might have had one camel, like most families would. But that camel, if they were to travel, would be carrying all of their essential supplies. And so at best, Mary probably with the donkey. History tells us that you could probably take about nine, 10 miles a day So here they go from Galilee, making this nine to 10 day journey. And we ask again, yeah, but Mary didn't really have to go. She was not part of this registry of taxation. Only her husband or the one that she's betrothed to would have had to go. And of all things, you can kind of hear the doctor side of Luke as he lays out these incredible details. She was expecting Many of you have a translation today that just simply says two words. She was with child. Have you ever stopped to think about that journey? They would have had one simple staple food, bread. In the morning, you ate dry bread. You would call that breakfast. At lunch, you would have bread with oil. And the evening meal you would have bread and oil and add some herbs to it and you would have water. How would we, how would they have kept warm animal and cow dung and and, uh, camel dung that had been, that's probably not too appetizing right here before lunch, is it? I mean, is that dried out? They would use that for fire. But just think about for a moment this trip the challenge of it. And it had to be at this city. And again, Luke so carefully lays it out. I just thought this week, the terrain, this is not flat land, this is hilly, rocky terrain. And they finally get to Bethlehem and, the, and, and, and history tells us probably 10, 12,000 other people had come back there to register because that's where they were from. That was the law requiring this census that was brought about by Caesar himself. I don't know about you, but one of my favorite Christmas songs is Mary, Did You Know? I love those lyrics and I love that song, Mary, Did You Know? And every time it's sung inside, I want to stand up and say, yes, she knew. I mean, think about it for a moment. Why would Mary make such a crazy trip, not required to do so, unless Mary knew something that the whole world did not know? The most important thing in the world was to get that child to be born into that place at the perfect time. And why Bethlehem? We're reminded, aren't we, that 800 years 
before Caesar ever made that announcement about the census, a prophecy was made. You remember it in Micah 5 and verse number 2? You Bethlehem, you place of bread, O Ephrath, that place that was named prior to being Bethlehem, you may be small among the clans of Judah, but out of you will come one for me. One who will be the what? The ruler over all of Israel and whose origins are from old and ancient times. I think about Caesar Augustus. Man, he must have been proud about this time, you know? I bet he was feeling pretty good about himself. Hey, what a brilliant idea I've come up with to tax, to sensize, to count everyone. Man, I mean, he's probably already feeling this influx of money into the coffers. He's probably feeling like, man, I'm so important to the world today. There's no way I can be I can be replaced. I'm a slick dude. I have a brilliant idea here. Probably all those things ran through Caesar's mind, but little did he know, really all he was was just an errand boy for a minor prophet by the name of Micah. Amen? Think about that for just a moment. One of the things that um, our office staff has set out to try to do is to try to help their pastor be more tech savvy and I hate technology my phone broke the other day and I made a proclamation I will never have another cell phone again and within 30 minutes a new cell phone appeared on my desk and now they're trying to train me in that cell phone and one of the things they want me to use because I asked them, hey, draw me a little map here. And they said, oh no, Pastor, you got Google Earth, you've got all these different things. We wanna show you how to use that. And so I just sit there and listen to them, let it go in one ear and out the other. But as one of our administrative assistants today was so kind to say, now I wanna show you this, are you looking, are you looking, are you looking? I said, hey, six feet, six feet, six feet apart. But you know, you can take those programs now with your fingers and you can just move on that screen and it zooms you in or pushes you out. Have you ever stopped to think as we're zoomed way out, there were only three continents known to mankind at this day and time. There was Europe, there was Africa, there was Asia. And God had already zoomed in 800 years before to the continent of Asia. And and think about that. There were a number of countries even within the confines of Asia. But God had already said 800 years ahead of time, zoom in a little closer, it's going to be in Palestine. That's where it will be. But even within Palestine, there were three regions. I mean, is it going to be in Samaria? Is it going to be in Galilee? Is it going to be in Judea? And God said, no, 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 in Judea, that's where it's going to be. And so we're just honing it. And even within Judea, there's all these multitude of villages. He says, but there's but one. And that place will be Bethlehem. That's where the Savior will be born. And you see... I don't know about you, but that city and that whole prophetic reconnection for me and just the certainty out of that. Let me tell you something. Our God, 
He doesn't bring things in terms of, hey, we'll just guess what might happen. When he declares something, it will happen. And again, the certainty of that. You got the census. You've got the city. Jot down one third and final C word with me that's been so encouraging to me. And that's the word cradle. Because there's a cradle here that's going to be mentioned, a manger, if you will, that really is going to be all about confirming a promise that God has given us. Let's keep reading that Christmas story. Look down in verse number six. While they were there, a time came for a baby to be born. And she gave birth to him, a firstborn, a son. Should we have been shocked? I mean, it had been real something. It had been really something if it had been a girl, huh? She wrapped him in clothes, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room. There was no, what was the King James said? There's no room for him in the end. The NIV says there was no guest room available for them. You and I need to be reminded something, many of us as followers, maybe some of you here today uh, or at the center or maybe some that are watching, uh, tuning in or streaming live with us today, but... You know, really, when you look at it from a worldwide perspective, three events that probably the, the biggest events of, that have occurred in all time world history. The resurrection of our Lord and Savior being one of them. Think about that. The crucifixion being one of those. But also the incarnation the very birth and the coming of our Lord and Savior would have to be in one of the big three. And just a moment ago, we referred to Micah 5.2 because 800 years before the birth of our Lord and Savior, God kind of took his fingers for a minor prophet and he said, hey, he, he was kind of peeling back a, a picture of what was going to happen. But you know, that's not the only time our God did that. If you fast forward about 52 years or so in history, closer to the birth of Jesus, 748 years or so before the birth of our Savior, God did the same thing for another prophet by the name of Isaiah. As he zoomed in and pulled that curtain of the future back so Isaiah could see it, he simply spoke these words and Isaiah recorded those for us in Isaiah 7:14. He said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin. She'll conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. You know, our God gave us clues in the biblical text about the coming of the Savior from the very beginning. For instance, in Genesis 3.15, we learn very quickly in our Bible that our God, the very Son of God, would be coming not as an angel, but as a human being, he was, he was promised to be a human. In Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, we find out he won't be a Gentile. He'll be a Jew. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, we discover something else about him. We discover what tribe he's gonna be from, from the tribe of Judah. In 2 Samuel 7, those first 17 verses, we find out that he's gonna be from the family of David. We get to Isaiah 7, I just mentioned it. We find out he'll be born of a virgin. We get to Micah 5, we, we, we were, we're reminded that he's gonna be born in Bethlehem. Every single promise 
God brings about in not in just spirit, but in truth and fact. One of the things that happens so often at Christmas is there's almost every single Christmas, someone will bring to my attention, a pastor, I was reading something the other day, and you know, as Americans, we have really manufactured a lot of extra things around the birth of Christ. And you know, I guess that statement is true. For instance, if we had a typical nativity up here today, we would have a stable and animals. But you know, our Bible doesn't give us the specific facts that Jesus was born in a stable. It does tell us with specific accuracy that he was placed in a manger, which is a feed trough, we know that, for animals. But that manger may have been placed up against one outside wall of the end and some, maybe some bur something we would know as burlap or blankets placed around a family that was huddled there by a fire because there was no room inside. But wherever that exact location was, it certainly reminds us that our Lord and Savior was not born in a hospital. He wasn't even born in a home. He was born in a place or close proximity to a place that animals were kept. And I'm just reminded this Christmas again of how few times in the very, from the very birth of our Lord to the time that he ascended into the heavenlies, how so often there was no room for him. But I'm reminded this Christmas that there was at least one room in the inn available. There was at least one room available. The innkeeper's room could have been available. You ever stop to think about that? Joseph making his way up there to try to find a room. Maybe he even brought Mary around there so the innkeeper could see her. 10, 11 days on the trail. She's not just pregnant. She's really, really pregnant. Maybe they're cold. Maybe they're shivering. Can you imagine? Maybe the innkeeper could have simply said, Man, of all things, I can sleep outside tonight. Man, I don't want that very young lady right there in that condition to have to go through any extra elements or any extra... I just, I just couldn't live with myself if anything happened to her because of me not being willing to surrender my room. But the innkeeper did with what so many others did. He chose not to make room for Jesus. You know, in my takeaway this Christmas, just a simple reminder is that, you know, if we want God to make room for us in heaven, we had better make room for Jesus in our hearts. A census a city, 
a cradle. Those three C words remind us about how amazing our God really is. Maybe next year, maybe in May, maybe in June, maybe in September, I'm going to remind us and bring back for us again. You remember last year in the midst of all that chaos and confusion? It's hard for me to stand here and, and not hear the water running from the balcony collapsing and being flooded after the steeple was sheared off our building. But that too passed. And it's hard for me now as I rush down off this platform before any of you make your way up to put on a mask for me not to be reminded that, man, we live in chaotic times. But I only have to take God's word and the history of all the things our God's done to be reminded that he is still in control. And I'm going to trust him. And I hope you will also. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for these moments that we've had in your word. Thank you for the music that has stirred our hearts today. Those songs that we so often say, we just love Christmas songs. But Father, we know that those songs are much more than just a cradle. They are just evidence of a, of a newborn child that grew to be a grown man that ministered to so many in our world. But this God-man and this man-God was set aside to be a supernatural sacrifice, a way for all of us to have eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ, to have atonement with our God himself. Father, that is what is really at the background of Christmas. Every little detail orchestrated to perfection. Big, powerful men move like little pieces and pawns on a board by the sovereign God. Feeble, young adolescents used by God to bring about a life to sustain that life so that we might have a savior in total fulfillment. Only a holy God could do that. To orchestrate the place, the time, and to be able to share exactly what would happen hundreds of years ahead of time. God, you are more than worthy of our praise, you are more than worthy of our trust. And Father, we are not deserving of your goodness. Thank you for what you have done in our lives. And as we draw closer and closer to this day that we've just called Christmas, Father, may those days as they count down bring us closer and closer with an incredible connection to you. Father, as we rediscover Christmas, that the bells may ring loudly in our hearts and the memories of that cross 
might stir our hearts as well. We love you and worship you. And these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.